Welcome to Single Serving Cinema with Tim and Tay, a podcast that looks at one critical scene in a movie every other week. We explore how the scene is constructed, what the scene achieves, and what it can tell us about the movie as a whole. While we won't needlessly spoil any of the movies we talk about, we will go where the discussion leads us, and so it's recommended that you watch the movie before you listen. I'm Tim. And I'm Tay. How's it going, everybody? We have a really special episode today. Is It is our 10th episode. So it, we are calling these potlucks officially i guess where Mm -hmm. everyone brings something to the table we all have a different scene uh in mind today Uh, and i would like to also introduce our special guest james stacy co-host of the gray nato a podcast about travel adventure diving driving gear and most certainly watches hey well done yeah welcome to the show and apparently also an undeniable fan of the movie that we are discussing this week which is blade runner 2049 it's a goodie yeah, you've seen this movie a couple times, right, James? At least a couple this week, yeah, for sure. <laughs> <laughs> this is my go-to for uh, planes for a long time. Uh, it's I, a good long one for plane rides. Yeah, exactly. Good, and it's a nice way to, like, I, I, this is a weird statement, and I'm sure we'll get into why it's weird, but it's also one that I just got used to falling asleep to on planes. Uh, and then it was mm-hmm. one where uh, once I had two monitors, if I was working, I would just commonly leave it on the other one as, like, yeah. look how good good work is if you take your time to make it happen. And it's uh, a nice inspiration. little inspiration. Yeah, yeah sort yeah. of a goal. <laughs> yeah, and to anyone who's listening and sort of cringed at the idea of watching such a great, beautiful movie on a small uh, plane screen, I do just want to note, actually, in the research for this episode, uh, I was listening to the Team Deacons podcast with Villeneuve, and Denny Villeneuve, the director of 2049, mentions that he... How did he put it? He offended Roger when Roger found out that he had Terrence Malick's The Thin Red Line on his iPhone. <laughs> and and Deacons, Deacons was a little shocked by that. But uh, they also they talked for a little while about the fact that most of their formative film experiences as kids uh, were a matter of watching movies on TV, not in the cinema. So as much as they love cinema, they don't think it's crucial to the entire experience mm-hmm. so you can certainly enjoy something like this on a plane that's interesting yeah i, I got got used to watching on my laptop which really is is probably the better of all the most of the screens that i own certainly the most comfortable but the the ones mm-hmm. on the planes are usually pretty bummer when it comes to <laughs> resolution and yeah. uh, black any, any indirect light and uh, you won't see anything especially not in some of the more washed out scenes in this movie absolutely I mean, it is worth noting that we've all seen this movie countless times now so mm-hmm. watching it on a smaller screen after you've been privy to seeing it on a big screen is not that big of a deal in my opinion yeah we can almost just meditate on it and yeah uh, and go through it in our heads uh, at least I first couple acts but yeah i still think of the theatrical experience of seeing this movie for the first time i ran into a bunch of people that i knew right after i came out of the movie theater and they asked what i thought and i i couldn't even speak yeah i i had nothing to say verbally about the film yet i was still in full processing mode yeah I remember I was uh, living in Vancouver at the time and I found I would always, I don't, this is maybe an unpopular thing. It's definitely something I've argued with uh, Tim about, but I don't like movie theaters that much. And it's not that I don't love the giant screen and the great sound. That's amazing. It's, I don't like watching movies with other people around and listening to them chew on their food and talk to each other and, and like shift their weight around. All of it bugs me. I like Mm -hmm. noise canceling headphones and a screen I can put right on my chest and I can lay in bed and watch a movie in like (laughs) relative isolation. Yeah. And uh, and but I did for this movie, I made a huge uh, departure because there was a, a great cinema south of me on Canby Street, right at the bottom on Marine Drive um, before you get into kind of Burnaby and, and, and other areas of, of Vancouver. But um, 
and they had a really high-end screen. They did to-your-seat food and drink delivery, and they did Blade Runner showings that started at 12.30 a.m. <laughs> so I had a friend in, who, who ran his own business during the day and was also a huge fan of Deacons and, and Villeneuve and, and of the Blade Runner franchise. So we went... Uh, uh, we would just go at 1230. There'd be four other people in the theater. Everybody was willing to be as quiet as a mouse. And you mm-hmm. could eat some chicken fingers and have a decent beer and, and watch <laughs> this movie. It was, it was definitely the way to do it. Yeah, that's a great experience. I, uh, I'm trying to remember, actually. I'm pretty sure I went. If I didn't see it with you, Taylor, then I almost certainly saw it with our, our previous guest, uh, Rob, uh, just at a local cinema here. And, yeah, I do remember kind of walking out, almost certainly a late showing that we would have gone to because we prefer those because, again, fewer people... Mm-hmm fewer kids things like that a little bit more of a controlled experience and yeah walking out kind of dumbfounded like you knew you saw something special you knew you'd be processing it for a matter of weeks or months or years uh, i don't know if really, i'm done yet yeah well that's the thing every well, like especially doing this. such a rewarding yeah. process over the last week or two uh diving into this and researching it there's a lot there, but there's also not as much as other movies. Um, we were talking before we started recording. There is no like director's commentary, and it doesn't appear to be something that Denny is ever going to be interested in doing. Bummer. Um, the best you'll get, we've found some interviews. Again, that episode of the Team Deacons podcast, things like that. But largely, um, I guess I guess maybe the, the key example here is in that podcast episode, Deacon's son asked Denny about how some people can watch a movie and think it's just the plot. And other people can watch a movie and see all these themes and things that you can analyze. And Denny talked for like 10 minutes straight after that about how that's cinema with a, with a capital C. And how if he's lucky, he'll, he'll create that once or twice in a movie. And I think he's also, he's very, um, very hard on himself. I think he did that a number of times in this movie, as we'll get into. Well, he's a humble Canadian. He certainly is. And we're, we're, we're proud to, uh, to lay claim to him. So much love. Yeah. So uh, I guess to dive into it, just in case uh, for the people who would like to listen before they watch the movie, uh, here's our synopsis. Set 30 years after the first film, Blade Runner 2049 tells the story of Kay, a replicant who discovers the remains of one of his kind who had died giving birth to a child. As a Blade Runner with the LAPD, Kay is secretly tasked with finding the child and destroying all evidence related to it in order to prevent all-out war between humans and replicants. Starring Ryan Gosling and Harrison Ford, Blade Runner 2049 was released on October 3rd, 2017. It's available as a digital rental, as you can find in our show notes. However, as it's our 10th episode, it's our first potluck episode, we've got this great guest on, we are announcing a giveaway. Um, We're going to give away a Blu-ray of Blade Runner 2049, so check out our Instagram. It's one of those Instagram giveaways you get tagged in all the time. Tag some friends, like the post, uh, follow the account if you're not already. Um, we're at sscpod on Instagram. Uh, all the info is there in the show notes. So get in on that and we'll ship you a Blu-ray. I hope you have a Blu-ray player. Um, this is like movie theaters. is another thing James and I uh, sort of differ on is whether uh, physical media <laughs> is necessary or a good investment. And uh, yeah, so uh, if you like Blu-rays, then get in on the giveaway. Where is this actually available to stream even, James? Um, let's see. I bought it some time ago. Oh, okay, you did yeah. buy it. <laughs> yeah, I've, I bought it back a, a while back on iTunes. It's kind of the only reason I still have keep open my iTunes <laughs> is, uh, is to play it. But I, I'm pretty sure it was on Netflix for some time, okay. uh, but I don't believe it is yeah. anymore. I think it was like Netflix and then maybe Prime for a bit. Uh, currently, as of recording, 
uh, yeah, you can't stream it anywhere. You can find it as a rental, or one lucky listener will uh, get it in the mail in a couple weeks. You know what? Let's make it two. I'll buy a copy for someone as well. Whoa, look at that. Just double down. Right on. Yeah, people need to see this movie. It's uh, yeah. we'll, we'll get to the numbers in a little while, but it's something that has never sat well with me. This is a fantastic yeah. thing. Yeah, we're gonna we're gonna dive into that. Before we do, I did just want to we we love talking about the taglines on the podcast here. The tagline for this movie is "The key to the future is finally unearthed." And between that and the synopsis, which we wrote up, and you know, based on the other synopses that you see around the web, they all refer to this big like existence altering history making secret at play in this movie and i gotta tell you whenever i think about this movie i am never thinking about the large implications in that universe it is there is such an interiority to every single scene this movie is the few characters who you connect with to me and i was wondering how you guys feel about that if you it does not feel like i know what they're playing with is something that will inform the future of humanity and and replicant kind or synthetic kind but that's never what is what is um, top of mind for me. I think it comes at you at a weird angle because we follow the movie through the perspective of, of someone on the other side of this battle, if that battle mm-hmm. were to happen. We're humans, but the movie's framed from the position of a modern replicant. And yeah. I think it's a it's an interesting way of, of almost diminishing the weight of it because you make it so personal. Right, like uh, this is in even other other movies, other recent war films. Is you can take big scale, mm-hmm. the opening scene to Private Saving Private Ryan, or you can take something much more personal, like 1917, mm-hmm. and and it just changes the scope. It's it's not that the stakes are necessarily different; it's that they they carry a different sort of weight in this movie. And I would say that. Well, I, I want to get into how many times we've actually all seen this movie collectively, but <laughs> I'd say the amount of times I've seen this movie, it has changed. Like the my takeaway has changed mm-hmm. every time to become more of like the worldview of the film mm-hmm. rather than just focusing on like the personal insular stories. Like those are what enticed me and what I was mag- like magnetized by on my first five viewings of this movie, probably. But now, the more I watch it, the more I see the nuances of the stakes like being kind of played out earlier in the film like before the stakes even really take shape they are kind of i don't know you learn a lot about the world and what is at stake i guess yeah yeah no i love i love the presentation of the things that play here right because it is so ground level you're so locked into uh k uh who's played by ryan gosling his sort of story and his efforts and what he learns and then learns again about himself and what he's seeking um, and I, f- I think it's so easy to forget that, oh, yeah, like in this actual setting, in this environment, everyone important other than Wallace, essentially, is off planet. The rich people have left already, right? You're, you're, wa- you're watching the dregs of a society, the, the slums, even the, even the nice parts of L.A. Um, are, are not nice. And then you, you get outside to San Diego or Las Vegas and you see how much worse it can get. Um, I, lo- I love that you're, you're, you're in this setting where... I think from a top-down view, if you're going to look at this society, this interplanetary society, your your first choice of setting might be something else. Um, but they give you this small scale to connect with emotionally. And and again, like, yeah, that tagline and the synopsis, it points towards this way bigger thing, and that's never what I feel in this movie. Yeah, mm. I, I think the other thing to consider is they take all of that, and then what they do is they wrap it around a dusty secret that's still a secret. Mm-hmm. 
the the existence of the replicant born child, the movie ends and it's still a secret. The yeah. same people know about it that arguably know about it roughly halfway through the second act. And in some ways, oh. it's very new information for Kay, but it's 30-year-old information for some of the other characters, right? Whether it's due to a blackout or if you're Decker, mm-hmm. it's your, I mean, it's your kid. Like, yeah. it, it's, it's this sort of complicated uh, thing, but the, the secret never explodes. There's no moment where mm-hmm. the, the zombie virus becomes an army. It, it's just this bubbling possibility of terror and 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 the collapse of what what is left of humanity which is why i think all the little micro setups for what is at stake are so important mm-hmm. you kind of get the perspective of i don't know if she has a character name other than madam in the film but uh, robin wright's character kind of joshy impl- joshy yeah oh is yeah. it okay captain Sorry. joshy so she she kind Lieutenant. of implies the stakes and like what humans risk losing throughout Mm -hmm. the film and i thought that that like those weren't scenes that i was really zeroed in on the first Mm -hmm. couple watches i don't Mm -hmm. know because maybe it is because of uh, k as a character you kind of are sucked into his world and kind of his personal journey as a replicant who thinks he might be human born or naturally born but then you kind of see that there is so much more at play and that it would completely ratify everybody who's left on earth if Mm -hmm. this secret got out and i like that it's kind of this is where the story ends is that it's still a secret and you have no idea what could happen with it with the information well yeah i mean they there's there's scenes in the third act that suggest like they are on the verge of a war right because this child is supposed to lead this replicant revolution and i think in a simpler script or an easier script the third act is the beginning of that fight there's some storming Wallace headquarters and and um, freeing enslaved replicants and and taking over and and things like that and it's so much it's so much smaller in it in its immediate scale and and grander otherwise I think it's a it's a really graceful balancing act my personal theory is that they didn't want to have Jared Leto on set any longer than they needed to so they cut <laughs> <laughs> almost everything with him that they wanted to do or could have done out of the movie it's possible but like you hear uh denny talk about jared leto he's uh he's incredibly generous he there's in one of the yeah, interviews he talks you can tell about he's the, walking on eggshells well you get like he he described the first time leto came on set as being like a jesus experience because he came on he was wearing these these opaque uh contacts that his character uses um or which that, blinded that, that, him yeah yeah, well, they they originally weren't blinding him. Then he asked them to to actually set them up so they would blind him. So he got the experience, and he was being led on set by his arm. And uh, Denny Denny said it brought tears to his eyes. So uh, I think I, the obviously there's no way we can know him until one day when we get him on the podcast. But um, at least in interviews, it really seems like Jen, Denny's a pretty uh, genuine person. So uh, <laughs> yeah, but ba- based on the the purported experience with Leto, Leto on set, I wouldn't be surprised, hey. <laughs> what what a cast is is what where I would go from there. Yeah. <laughs> All right, well, I'll take it easy on Leto then. We can go. Yeah, yeah. We can be generous about the cast. No, it it, it is though. Um, I think everyone really nails their parts, and and again, unless you're you're K or or Deckard to an extent, you're not on screen that much. Um, but you leave a big lasting impact. I think in memory, Joy is in this movie a lot more, and Ana de Armas. 
and uh, and even this, this even the, the smaller time I saw roles her too, and she's awesome yeah. in it. Well, yeah, it was, I think it was her first major English language role because apparently she had to take something like four or five months of classes to learn to enunciate English uh, this well. Her accent's um, incredible really, in this. Yeah, she really invested time in it. And I think it really worked. Um, give, gives a phenomenal performance. And then even right when you get down to your 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 smaller characters, uh, uh, Mackenzie Davis um, as the uh, as the sex worker. Uh, also, first time I saw threesome. her. Yep, she's fantastic. Um, Barkhad Abdi as Doctor Badger. Mm-hmm. Yes, an all timer, like probably doing the most with the least. Sylvia Hooks, it's pretty yeah. incredible. Mm-hmm. She's just perfect. You can yes. I mean, it, it, I, yeah, the the level of like tension in her performance as she yeah. kind of holds back, and you see it a couple times. I'm sure we'll get to some of it. Some of it's in violence. Some of it is in sort of just a, a like a slow sort of release of power uh, throughout yeah. a scene uh, but she, I think she just does an incredible job with you know limited number of minutes in many mm-hmm. ways an incredibly measured performance and and the one thing that I think we'll talk about later is how do you play a robot mm-hmm. right like how are you supposed to act like that and she manages to to thread this needle where she um like effortlessly tears up and cries in the in the act of of acts of violence or in seeing how much she will never measure up to what Wallace wants one of his his angels or his children to be I think it's incredibly nuanced performance yeah like you said playing a replicant would be difficult to kind of get a reading on how emotional you need to play scenes Mm -hmm. and the way that her character begins kind of as this very robotic structured organized replicant and then becomes this more unhinged ratcheted up character that is dead set on revenge at that by the end of like the action and mm-hmm. it, it's amazing watching the escalation and you have this in the performance. you have this incredible line that she reads before swimming back to the car in one of the final scenes of the movie where she just says i'm the best one yeah so it's, which it's she tells character, you that she thinks is important. Yeah, it's yep. this character born out of inadequacy, right? Like with this 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 god that does not mm-hmm. does not find her worthy. Uh, it's a it's a really tragic uh, line yeah. to draw and throughout it, this movie. It, it's interesting and, as a because counterpoint the, to K. Yeah, and it's interesting because the film almost personifies through a few of these replicant characters the tension between the idea of nature versus nurture. Um, where mm-hmm. one is a program, a lot everything we're seeing from a few of these characters is supposed to be portrayed as programming. Right, something that yeah. was written and decided, designed and then created, whereas humanity is typically seen as being somewhat more flexible. But of course, the movie presents humanity as being largely a negative thing at this point. It's it's mm-hmm. uh, exploitative. It's uh, you know concerned with its own with only with its own uh, position and power and those sorts. Of, and, and that was all, all all character from the all character development from the original movie. And mm-hmm. and then I think you can even see some of that tied up in how they changed the the Voight-Kampf test to this baseline test, um, where yeah. you go from trying to see if there's emotion there, and in the later ones, preserving a lack of emotion or empathy, yeah. I guess. Almost checking for something like like PTSD or, or yep. too much yeah. too much of a drag on Humanity. their psyche yeah. after after yeah. Uh, having a human reaction yeah the, the it kind of reveals the awareness of the programming and how it's advanced since the first film absolutely i agree yeah that the like it's seemingly aware at that its replicants might take on emotional stress or burden and, and start to it, deviate from that programming exactly mm-hmm. 
Um, so I think maybe this is a, a good enough uh, sort of preamble in showing, number one, how much we love this movie, how great we think it is, how much there is at, at play here, um, to just sort of jump over and talk about how this is somehow a flop. Um, yeah, we should touch on that before which we get is, the scenes. Which is wild. I mean, like, so to people who saw this show up in their podcast feed and wondered, you know, we generally on this podcast try to point to movies that are not as, not seen as much or are lesser within a director's um, filmography or within the context of a series like Ocean's 12. This was obviously a big movie. It had a massive budget and it made a lot of money. It somehow didn't make enough money. Um, so just to lay out the numbers, its budget is somewhere between 150 and 185 million. That'll be before marketing, mm-hmm. which be anywhere from 50 to 100 million on top of that for something global like this. Well, usually it's almost double what the budget says it is, right? Yeah, I would guess it wouldn't be double on a budget like this. But. Not like at this upper end, I wouldn't. I wouldn't bet on that. But still, like upwards of. 250 million at least if you incorporate marketing yeah. its box office was 260.5 million um and it had a so some articles that we found um sort of do the math and say it lost probably somewhere around 80 million dollars um That's and just lot. just to really show you how it performed in its second weekend it dropped 52 percent um and finished behind happy death day Third weekend, it finished fourth behind Boo 2, A Medea Halloween, that hurts. Geostorm, and Happy Death Day. I had um, forgot Geostorm existed until I saw you yeah, post Same that with stat. Happy Death Day. Yeah, Gerard. A- Happy Death Day is fun. I wouldn't have seen it before this movie, but... Um, <laughs> Uh, I, and I, I, have, I have nothing to say about Boo 2, A Medea Halloween. I, that one's very far down on the watch list, but uh, I, 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 can't, I can't speak to it. Maybe it's a great movie. Um, <laughs> I'm not going to say anything you know, about it. The, the, the thing to consider is scope here. So what they made was was a, a, a superbly detailed, very difficult to shoot, very expensive, all in camera film, and mm-hmm. and they still. I actually think they came in at less than you might expect. Uh, I think it could have yeah. easily ballooned, and you could have lost control of this production so quickly, yeah. given the the scale of what they're doing. Like this is basically one lord of the rings movie mm-hmm. or one and a half right like the the attention to detail the fact that everyone was using real props their costumes were there they weren't in front of green screens like uh the spinner k's car yep. functioned it didn't fly but like its doors opened it had light up panels and the Den- interior Denny was Villeneuve- fully prepped for shooting they shot yeah. the interior shots in the actual car which is like mm-hmm. kind of wild yeah Villeneuve is very insistent on all these things being real in terms of supporting the actors and giving them an environment to operate in. And Deacons is a, a just a phenomenal collaborator with Denny. And you hear a lot of this in the podcast where they're talking to one another. They see things on so much the same level. Um, Deacons really refuses to use green screen or blue screen. Um, he also, I mean, uh, one of the production, the line production heads for the studio said, okay, so for Blade Runner, you could do nine cameras. Uh, make sure we get coverage, things like that. And Deacon said, "No, absolutely not. We're using one camera. Um, we're we're not going to get coverage unless we really need it." Which, at this point, with him and, and Denny, is never. They told some great stories on that podcast about how, I think, in Prisoners, Denny agreed to get coverage on some shots after some of his favorite takes, and then realized the mistake he made because he might be forced to use them. And then on Sicario. He had ADs coming up like, okay, we doing coverage now? And he said, nope, I'm never making that mistake again. And then by the time you get to Blade Runner, 
it, the, to have that level of control yeah. over production like this is a pretty special thing. Well, it, See, this is a this is a savvy director who knows what he wants and one of the best in the business as far as cinematographers go. So you're talking about a heck of a one-two combination at mm-hmm. the creative head of this movie, and I don't think any studio in their right mind would question them. And they mm-hmm. like it the as far as how much money this movie lost, it didn't really seem to impact Villeneuve's Hollywood personality or like his the expectations of him in Hollywood mm-hmm. because he's obviously been selected to head Dune now. Yeah. Which um we'll we'll do a little brief wrap up talk at the end about what this movie and its performance means for Dune, which I think is a is a steeper hill to climb. But yeah, I think in general this movie um it was it was a a difficult production in terms of I think the studio perspective right it was expensive you're giving away a lot of control you're letting these people do it again they didn't go over budget by any by any accounts and they didn't go over their their shooting schedule either they're both really committed uh, storyboard um, producers um, both both Villeneuve and Deacons which I think helps a lot it's, but again it seems to be admittedly an advertising problem. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's advertising problem. Um, it is very long. It, it to the extent that it that it limits uh, screening opportunities, um, and uh, you know, depending on who you talk to, like you know, Ridley Scott likes to weigh in on everything. He said it was too long. <laughs> he said he would have cut about a half hour. And there are certainly arguments to be made for a scene here or there mm-hmm. uh, near the end. Uh, it's two hours and forty four minutes, so it's certainly long. Uh, Villeneuve said there's a four-hour early cut of the film that he called quite strong, but at times too self-indulgent. I want to see that. It, me me too. too. He says he says no one will ever see it. It's a real bummer to yes. to know to know about that existing. Some of my favorite movies are very self-indulgent. I want I want the Denny cut. Like that that's the hashtag we got to <laughs> yeah. start. But he he doesn't appear appear to want it out there. But I think as far as he said though, this is his director's cut because mm-hmm. he did say there was a little too much flack on the four-hour version and yeah he gave the studio a tremendous amount of praise for letting him release this version of the movie with almost zero tampering. Mm-hmm. And that's the thing. The, the editing of this movie is incredibly like pensive and slow. You get to sit and soak in all the scenes. And in the, in the process of doing the research for this, I looked into potential criticism of the movie and I found this one video that I think brought up some good points, but pointed them in the wrong direction. And sort of, he just sort of without context would show you, the space between someone saying someone something and someone responding to it, like between Harrison Ford and Ryan Gosling. And you have pregnant pause after pregnant pause. This movie is not paced like a modern movie. It's not paced like a movie that would have come out in 2017. And and, and that that all builds on top of the fact that the the audience for this movie was pretty narrow. There are people who really liked Blade Runner, the first one, which at its time was a flop and really just a cult movie. And would be down for going to see a two hour and 44 minute one yeah. off of not a great trailer. Yeah. You know, but we're talking about a very dedicated fan base, but I don't think the Blade Runner fan base is like as, as big as some of the other sci-fi major uh, products that are out right now. So mm-hmm. I don't think, I think this is a bit of oversight. Yeah. I mean, the, 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 the audience is pretty small and largely male, right? You're mm-hmm. not, it's not even Correct. remotely a four quadrant movie and it was budgeted. Like generally now you would have to be a four quadrant movie. I was just gonna say, like, I think a lot of those, those kind of big budget sci-fi movies now, they all capture 
more traditional storyline elements and mm-hmm. Blade Runner doesn't it didn't it didn't back with the original and it doesn't in this one I mean we're we're not we're not talking about necessarily a love story we're not talking about um saving the castle we're not talking about some of the more traditional things that Being we might tie guy, into even. yeah exactly yeah yeah exactly there's the we we don't have any face off really between the big villain and the protagonist and you know, so the movie feels really different than a, a Star Wars or a, a, you know a modern Marvel movie or something like that because mm-hmm. it's, it's this very cerebral kind of sometimes lost in its own thought um, or lack of thought depending on how you want to how you want to perceive the the characters <laughs> yeah. and, and their motivations. But it's this it's this superbly detailed thing that they've made with especially with this movie. Certainly with the first mm-hmm. one. But especially with this one, and I think sometimes they just let it have its time to breathe. I, I think the pacing is great for this movie, but not something I would apply to others. I think it's got way more in line with Alex Garland's movies than it does with like the modern remakes of like Robocop, mm-hmm. Total Recall, Alien sequels, other than Prometheus, um, Star it's Wars much sequels. More in line with- ironically ridley scott's prometheus mm-hmm. yeah it's uh, prometheus is the one big budget thing that i think sci-fi thing that i think it's in line with it's asking a lot of these big questions obviously you know ridley scott is obsessed with meeting his creator or talking to his creations um but yeah like garland especially ex machina is an obvious um sort of point of comparison but at what like a fifth of the budget mm-hmm. maybe and like probably less time. yeah so much more so, compact Mm-hmm. Right, and, and but aesthetically, and I, I just think you're tackling a much smaller topic when you're looking at that movie, or at least you're handling it in a much different way. You're not building an entire world in a movie like Ex Machina. Mm-hmm. A lot of the drawn out long scenes in Blade Runner, uh, Blade Runner twenty forty nine, are mostly by means of world building. Like you're trying to develop a sense of understanding about a world that we don't like. I don't know, it's really hard to kind of transition from, like, how we perceive our, our world right now versus what it's going to look like at like, mm-hmm. the time of this movie. And, I like, the progressions that Villeneuve kind of talked about versus Ridley Scott's original film, he mm-hmm. introduced things like snow, or in, and when mm-hmm. you, we get to the Las Vegas scenes, more, um, I don't know, more hazy weather that we don't really get in the rainy Blade Runner, mm-hmm. like, original. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, uh, it was in an interview, and I mean, it's Ryan Gosling, who's also Canadian, uh, largely making oh, a yeah. joke and saying that, yeah, Denny, as a Canadian, Denny wanted to put make his mark on Blade Runner, and doing so meant uh, adding snow to L.A. So that, that, w- that was his contribution there, if nothing else. <laughs> but you could say then that, like, Blade Runner, the original, had rain because Ridley Scott is British, perhaps. Yeah, yeah it's certainly possible. And I mean, rain looks cool in cyberpunk. Like, if you oh, have neon sure. lights, you need, you need rain. It's um, or at least a wet. I mean, when he when he basically, yeah, he developed the style guide for cyberpunk in Blade Runner twenty forty nine. You need the lights. You need um, low cost, high tech, and uh, and you need rain. Yeah, the the whole worn in aesthetic that actually like Star Wars probably initiated in science Mm -hmm. fiction is like really prevalent in cyberpunk as well, and it's something that I think we're going to talk talk about in almost every scene we bring up today. Yeah. And, and, I mean, with that, we can dive into the first one. Um, so we're going to go chronologically. Again, normally on the podcast, we just look at one scene and all talk about it. Uh, in this potluck episode, we all brought a scene to the table. 
Um, so my scene happens first because it is the first scene. Uh, another thing we try not to do on the podcast, but we're we're playing fast and loose with the rules here in episode ten. Um, That's right. No rules in the potluck. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> so uh, my scene happens uh, starting at three twenty-three and goes till ten twelve. It's just after you get some title cards and some preamble text and uh, a classic Ridley Scott shot of an eye. Um, the in the course of this scene, you have Kay uh, visiting the home of a suspected replicant and war veteran, Sapper Morton. Uh, when Kay tries to identify Morton as an illegal replicant, Morton attacks him. In the ensuing fight, Kay identifies Morton and is forced to kill him. Um, and uh, and that, that's largely what we're looking at here. And, I mean, to start it off, this this is right up there in, in my favorite opening scenes of all time, I'd say. Yeah. Opening scenes can be really exciting. I mean, it's where the director gets to set your expectations. And if they're doing their job right, I think they show you a little slice of this character's world while also hinting at the larger plot of the story. And there's so much to love about the scene and there's so much to dig into. Um, where, where does it stand for you guys? Oh, I, I, I love this scene. I love this uh, as an opening to the film. It feels like it takes... Villeneuve does tension as well as anyone. Mm. Uh, you know, this is what Sicario is, is essentially just an elastic band getting stretched tighter and tighter and tighter until it snaps back and you get this big clap mm -hmm. uh, and, and I think that they do this in this scene and there's enough texture to what they show you that you're immediately interested and then it hands that texture off to this very subtle little dance between two people that are sizing each other up and and mm -hmm. you know and then the fun thing is is this is a scene and this I guess what, what is great about a lot of opening scenes and stuff you've talked about in previous episodes is sometimes the scene that that first scene in a movie will pay dividends through the rest of the film. Yeah. And you think more things about Sapper and about uh, the secret and about how he protected it. And then later you learn just how selfless this, his side of this scenario was where, where you know, mm -hmm. Kay is checking a box and doing his job. Sapper has been doing what he's finishing in this scene for 30 years. And yeah. I, it's an interesting thing to start that without saying 30 years ago or in 30 years or anything like that. They just hand you something that's happening now that gives you all this context throughout the film. And then if you remove all of that, which you, I guess you could, if you remove all of that, it's just a really good scene with a sort of Western feel of mm -hmm. uh, two guys squaring up. And, uh, yeah. you know, you're, he's on unknown territory. And Sapper is very clear that, you know, doesn't like uninvited guests, but... I'm going to be as hospitable, limitedly as hospitable as I need to be. And, uh, and we're going to go from there. And of course, you know, the, the rest plays out pretty quickly. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's, it's very much like it's very genre. It's very pulpy and it's mm -hmm. dialogue. And, and again, like in terms of, of Western and, and sort of its integration into this setting, they show you, you know, the, you know, the, the bounty hunter comes in on a flying car and then goes through this, like clearly like this, like prefab, space age um domicile and goes inside and then you're like in an old western house right it's all like floorboards there's an upright piano it's fabric furniture and like there's a cast iron dutch oven yeah, normal uh, boiling away on the stove yeah. um it's such a, it's such a an interesting texture in this great marriage between the between the many ideas that are going to be at play in this movie yeah in my notes i literally wrote that it's a farmhouse mm -hmm. basically well, 
that it reminded me like exactly what you just said it's like an old western farmhouse that you'd mm-hmm. see in the old west movie but it has a yellow cube on the outside the entrance way mm-hmm. that just adds that subtle bit of futurism um that it literally it has a screen door that like yeah that creates, like, like they walk through door. and it's like like what what a move to have none of this like you know like because they do have these like sterile ish interior futuristic sort of settings like or at least like the apartments and the police station things like that but to have it start like this and yeah you've got this essentially a bounty hunter coming after a war veteran who's been on the run and in hiding um and they have this very pulpy dialogue um and i I think it's it's just such an incredible scene from the start yeah production production design wise just to touch on that entrance way to the farmhouse once more i think that when you first see it, it looks like one of those decontamination chambers. So I kind of expected it to be something very futuristic. But like you said, mm-hmm. then there's like just a screen door on the inside yeah. of it. So it's literally just like, I don't know, aesthetic? Just protection, or... I guess. Yeah. Yeah. I love that it looks like that house was there at one point, kind of like the tree. And then they attached, things were attached onto it to kind yeah. of update mm-hmm. it for a new dust bowl or a, a sort of like, a, it, it has this uh, settler appeal. Uh, yeah. Despite the fact very that fr- at least, very frontier, yeah, yeah. Despite the fact that you know, conceivably, it's not that far outside of L.A. Mm. And and I really to continue on the production design train of thought. I really like the design of the greenhouse or the I guess the tent that mm-hmm. we initially see um, Morton inside when he's like pulling out the protein worms. Mm-hmm. Uh, like I love those giant green sacks. Yeah, <laughs> there, there's. Yeah. It's just like what is that? It's, uh, uh, so many questions. The production design works so well with the narrative, with developing the narrative of the film. You quickly get thrown into this world without any real context other than that opening title card, which is about as concise as you could possibly be jumping into Blade Runner cold with with nothing, with no pre-context. So you get all this great production Mm -hmm. design that just allows you to kind of build the world without any dialogue to start the film. Yeah. Well, and I, I do think, like, you know, if your context is the first Blade Runner, I think it's, you know, just like in the in the, in the the first movie, in in the first couple of scenes at least, your big sequence is their Voight comp test, right? Um, and uh, I think you might expect if you, you know, if you're a big fan and you watch Blade Runner before going to see this in the theater, before the first time you watch it, you're going to expect something regimented like that. And there is an inevitability and resignation to this entire process um, with Sapper Morton that I think imbues the entire scene with the tension, right? They know what's going on and there is no set process. It's pure just like dialogue between the two. So you have essentially like what they're, what they're doing in here, instead of the conversation being, are you a replicant? It's uh, who are you and how do we define what we are? Their dialogue is entirely around finding out who the other person is and if they define that by what they do. So when they start, uh, you know, Kay says something to the effect of, or um, Sapper Morton says, are you a cop? And Kay responds, are you Sapper Morton serial number, whatever, right? And then, and he responds, I'm a farmer, right? So it's all these things at play about identity, which is obviously going to be, it, it's a big part of the Blade Runner mythos and it's going to be a big part of this movie is, is what you do, what defines you is being a Blade Runner, make you what you are, is being a farmer, make you... Um, make you innocent or, or should you be allowed to be let by because you're you're here you've been producing these protein worms 
Um, I think it immediately dives into these things at a high level, but in a way that still services the immediate plot of the scene, which is Kay has to has to figure out that he's got the right guy and then and then take him in. Well, for such sparse dialogue, there is a lot of character development happening. Uh, even I, I love the just little tiny touch of having Kay smell something, mm-hmm. and and Sapper Morton says it's the garlic I grow that for myself. Mm-hmm. You get like without that line i just feel like you lose a sense of his personality entirely like a whole facet of it's just erased so little subtle line in a scene where the, the dialogue is sparse already uh just adds so much personal context and i i love little moments like that yeah i think that you get the same when when he offers him some of the maggots and he says i prefer to keep an empty stomach until the hard part of the day is done is he saying like i know that i'm going to have to kill you yeah yeah, my it, my heart just drops every time he says it, and I know one, what's one of the best lines yeah. by far. It's so good, and then I think like he says that, and then it cuts to the the close shot with the with the 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 steaming pot mm-hmm. in the foreground. Again, just being like something's building here, and I love that it's not so obvious as being like he puts on a kettle for tea, and once the whistle goes off, when is when they start fighting. I love that it, you could be more obvious, but I think it works really well, and this whole thing also plays with what's going to be at play in in every single scene throughout this movie is are you a replicant is this character a replicant and i'm trying to remember i find it very hard to to the first time i watch this or based off the marketing how clear it was that ryan gosling's character is a replicant from the start i mean i'm sure it was in synopses or stuff like before you go see the movie but i'm trying to remember because i love reading this scene as the audience doesn't know if Ryan Gosling is a replicant or not because that was the big thing at play with Deckard in the first movie was is he a replicant will we ever know yada 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 so you have this whole scene there there's some very personal things that he does he's polite he he smells stuff um he does all these very human things so then when they when the fight comes to a head and you you already you see Sapper Morton how much bigger he is and he throws him through a wall and you're like how could this human blade runner ever survive this and it's just it's it's a matter of him being like i'm not gonna kill this guy unless i have to and then he determines he has to and it's not even close as a newer model and they really they take all the mystery out of it you're like oh yeah this guy this guy's a replicant he he took down i can't believe we haven't said till now dave bautista mm-hmm. plays sapper and uh knocks it out he of the sure park. does <laughs> i was gonna say that a minute ago <laughs> yeah bautista just d- yeah, it's it's the size comparison is not close. And I, I think that's a wonderful way to, to sort of build up play just within this very first scene at the mystery of, is Ryan Gosling just Ryan Gosling? Is Kay just, just a human? And like, if he is like, he took, he put his gun down on the table, a big, big time Western move. How is he going to beat this guy in a fight? And he, and he does it with barely breaking a sweat. It's just a matter of him determining, I have no other options here. Um, and it's one of many times where he really doesn't, become violent until he has to Mm -hmm. yeah and and so i like that like that's a good point because that's a trademark of his character throughout the film and you kind of have a sense by the end of it especially that he's a very sympathetic or he's very capable of sympathy i guess Mm -hmm. and i really like the how the scene is actually directed and how it is kind of visually constructed is really cool to me because Kay is seated and seemingly in this vulnerable position for the initial verbal exchange. And you kind of get this, you see the size difference in the two as like Sapper is still standing, kind of looks like he's in the power position. And then when the fight starts, you, like you said, Tim, you kind of get the sense that Kay might be in trouble 
because he's getting thrown through this wall so yeah. casually by this much bigger man. And, the, and I mean, the other thing, like, in terms of, again, you know, you can't cast somebody without people seeing who they have been before. Very few actors are true chameleons. So anyone who, I mean, I'm not a, a wrestling fan, but I understand that Bautista had a big presence uh, in that culture for a long time. And people know he's this powerful guy. And even just before this, he was Drax, right? Mm-hmm. A big, silly guy. And to have this about face in terms of, like, drama and character and, and how he acts, but then just, yeah... Everything is set up in the scene to make you think that K cannot win this fight unless he's got his gun, uh, and uh, and it's so obvious by the end of it that it, it was never even at stake. He was doing something he didn't want to have to do, but he has to do it. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, that's why I kind of like how they have him seated for that whole first part of the conversation, just because he's so casual and just seemingly knows that if an altercation breaks out he still has the upper hand as the stronger model but he's almost like uh, i don't know what's the word like he's almost like done with the whole situation already he he kind of already knows what's going to happen and he's just mm-hmm. exhausted being there and all of that like all of that again it's phenomenal direction it le- it leans into that tension it's everyone in this scene knows what's going to happen. They're going through this preamble. They're they're half-heartedly looking for a way out of the inevitable conclusion. But uh, but it's 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 going to happen one way, and that's the way it does. And I, I love like when one one little sort of note on the production of of when he finally takes Sapper Morton down. He he shoots him mm-hmm. uh, off screen. Uh, Sapper Morton gets shot off screen and falls, and they have the camera shake just to get yeah, one, like it's on the floor. One yeah, like one last note that. Bautista's huge. This guy is massive. And, uh, you know, Kay got, got out almost entirely unscathed. He just took a scalpel in the shoulder, which he, he glues back together because uh, <laughs> the LAPD won't cover the health care. Uh, so I get my biggest takeaway from the scene, like as many as there are so many good things about it, but my biggest takeaway is always still Bautista's performance and like mm-hmm. kind of his haunting final lines um, I don't know if this is something you were going to dive full on into, Tim, so I'll let you take it if you want. Uh, well, I mean, yeah, I, I looked up. Uh, Bautista seems like a real nice guy. He was happy to talk in a lot of interviews about this process because I guess it was something he was telling his agent he wanted to do for a long time. He didn't want to just be like an action heavy or even like under the best circumstances be like the rock right and get to do like action comedies and definitely make tons of money and be an icon he wanted dramatic roles and it sounded like it was a long process of telling his agent over and over stop well, he did a lot of these, acting school and stuff like yeah that too. stop bringing me these roles there's specific things that i want uh he said it was hard for people to see past my physicality and see that i actually wanted to act um you know even after i got drax i just really wanted to do some acting um, I wanted to do some drama and he said people would just giggle at me, but Villeneuve, um, I didn't, I don't think I specifically found how Villeneuve found him, but, um, in casting him, Villeneuve said that the vulnerability that Dave brought to the character was essential for the movie to be a success. And I do think there is this light touch that someone of Bautista's size brings to his, his lines and the way he moves until he attacks that, uh, is really, um, it's really engaging. I think it really draws you into that character. And, uh, and furthermore, like a lot of that too comes down to Denny, who was willing to work with someone like Bautista. Bautista said, 
uh, Villeneuve did some things that I think a lot of actors wouldn't allow a director to do. He demonstrated how he wanted to move. He moved him around. He showed him how to put on his glasses. These are things like we, I was talking with James about this around a campfire recently. We're joking that, you know, you try to do that to Ed Norton and he, he would badmouth you in the tabloids for a decade for sure. And probably blow up your movie. It's not something that directors normally do with actors. You don't really tell them how to say a line by saying the line to them. Mm -hmm. You tell them, you instruct, and you then change and alter after a certain, after like a take, right? But you never like want to, you're, it's very rare that you have that kind of relationship with an actor where you can physically move them or tell them like very specifically Mm -hmm. what to do. You mostly have to imply and infer. Yeah, and I think, I think like that, that. that that shows how willing Bautista was to want to learn from, from I think he keeps wanting, wanting to lurk, work with certain directors so that he can learn from them and being entirely humble about his, his role in that film and, and knowing that he could contribute more if he sort of allows a director to be a little bit more direct than than uh, than is the industry standard. Yeah, and I think the, well, the cinematography also kind of supports him a lot in that. Mm-hmm. in that room and makes the most out of his performance. Gosling's is very much in the background. Like you could tell he's done this a lot of times before, whereas there's a tension that mm-hmm. Bautista has where he's like, I know this day has been coming and I'm not going to go easy. And yeah. and they have this thing where there's a lot of scenes where he is essentially the foreground. He just takes up a huge part of the frame and mm-hmm. Gosling's in the back silhouetted by a window or you know, the few times that you see Gosling kind of full in the frame is once he has the power. He's already been <laughs> blown through a wall by hand yeah. and, uh, and and had this little fight. But even even just the, the hand motions for Batista, whether it's putting the glasses on or when he reaches down to kind of mm-hmm. ensure that his scalpel is there, they don't, uh, like, obviously you want to telegraph that it's a scalpel and not a gun, but, but in a different movie, you might just show the hand movement towards the hip as being enough, there's so much slowness and, and texture to, to how they yeah. shoot the scene. And I think it, like I said, it just, it just pays off. You see it 10, 20 times and it's just, there's so much there to capture. It's not something you gloss over the scene and the scene doesn't gloss over anything inside it. Yeah. And that, that was a good point too, about how they sort of present the two characters. Um, Gosling, once he's entered the home, he's sitting in shadow the whole time. He's got the coat with the big like half collar that goes up to his cheekbones and it's all dark. It's so very really villainous, actually. <laughs> yeah, and then and Bautista's like in this washed out coverall, so it really catches the light. I mean, in comparison to everything else in this somewhat somewhat underlit scene, there's no. It's all exterior lights, right? Like, um, it's there. There are no lights on inside this house. Mm-hmm. So Bautista, yeah, he does really shine uh, while he's standing and while he's while he's in the foreground, really until he's on the ground. Um, I, oh, I go don't, ahead. Yeah, yeah I don't want to like just to jump back to what you were saying a minute ago i don't want this to sound like a negative thing about batista but i feel like at this point in his career he was almost like desperate for an opportunity to flex his chops uh in a way that was Mm -hmm. separate from i don't know what he was perceived to be as an actor and i don't yeah i don't that villeneuve gave him the chance so i i would have expected like he would have taken all direction necessary to pull off something like this mm-hmm. and i as that does speak to his humility still but i i think that the opportunity to do something like this was so massive for him and i would have thought he was a good actor based on playing drax as well as he did but being just that character it's really hard to say like 
that guy is going to be really good in my movie. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's definitely tough. And, and I mean, it definitely, it, it paid off. He got, he got cast in Dune, uh, in a, in a pretty, pretty solid role too. Um, Beast Rabin. Um, I, I really hope they give him a lot to work with, with that yeah. character. I don't remember from... in the book him having many lines, but, uh, again, if he becomes, if he's just a, you know, if his strength is in these these physical actions, not not necessarily actual action or fighting, but in his presence, that's that's still something, right? Yeah, and I look forward to seeing him in pretty much anything that he'll do down the road too. Like I know he's done a handful of movies, and I'm probably a couple behind, but I'll see really anything with Batista in him. He's elevated everything he's been in. Yeah, mm-hmm. he's fun for sure. And the yeah, the one other thing I wanted to touch on in this is just again, I had mentioned how you know a good opening scene gives you a slice of life for this character, which obviously Kay does this all the time, but it also uh, starts the story towards the actual plot of the movie and what's going to be different in his life or how, how he's going to be changed. And Sapper Morton's last line, an incredibly crucial line in this movie, saying that these younger models referring, like basically he never refers to Kay as a replicant until after the fight. So again, whether or not it's clear that they can just recognize one of their own based on how they act or if he's not making that call till he gets his ass handed to him by a much smaller guy in a much newer model. I don't retire my own kind because we don't run. Only older models do. Even new models are happy scraping the shit. Because you've never seen a miracle. And that really... That points towards this ongoing theme that the most human thing you do or something, the most important thing you can do with your life, whether you're a replicant or a human, is to be a part of a bigger mission, to have a greater purpose. And for Morton, that was just a matter of witnessing a miracle and that being enough. And that, that, that really informs sort of the, um, the catharsis and the conclusion for Kay. I also think it kind of incites the sense of mystery that the film, like the central mystery of the film, right? you kind of Mm -hmm. after this moment because it is once again so impactful his final line uh you kind of are wondering okay what's this miracle and i you kind of you just have a sense that this is what's going to change everything about the world that we're with that we're in right now Mm -hmm. yeah no it's a phenomenal scene It, it it functions so well as an opening scene and again it's really easy to just pull it up and watch it as its own as like a little a little short uh it's got this great internal arc and a and a singularly great performance uh, by by Dave Bautista. So that's uh, that's why I picked that one. But I think uh, unless anyone else has anything to add, we can hop on over to James's. Yeah, so uh, my scene is uh, the crash scene that happens about an hour into the film uh, as they go to try and find the orphanage. So time code is 5851, runs till 10547, so another roughly seven-minute scene. And the synopsis is, uh, after pulling the record suggesting the replicant-born offspring had spent time at the Morial Cole orphanage, Joy and Kay go for a ride to San Diego, which is now a massive dumping site. That's a big dig on San Diego, I might add. Uh, their car, <laughs> yeah. which is called the Spinner, is attacked by marauders and brought down near the orphanage. Stunned from the crash, Joy is glitching, and Kay wakes up to find the marauders attempting to cut into his ship. He gets out and begins to engage the attackers, quickly showing more of his true combat ability. Uh, more attackers begin to arrive, but Kay is not alone in this fight. Back at Wallace HQ, Love begins a drone strike while she's also getting her nails done. 
quickly dispatching the Marauders. Love's involvement allows Kay to continue on their now overlapping goal of finding the child. No longer under attack, Kay climbs a nearby trash hill, and we get our first glimpse of the orphanage. I think this is a, an interesting scene because it does a lot with very little dialogue. I actually think in, uh, in other directors' hands, um, it could have been something of a throwaway, a transit scene. Uh, mm-hmm. But I think it, it, it teaches us a lot, not only about um, Joy and Kay, but also about the, the vehicle and also about the world outside of L.A. This is kind of our first chance as they're driving out to get a, a big view of the wall, the sort of tide wall. Yep. Uh, that exists, and as they head south, they you see these giant kind of trash machines dropping piles, and you don't really get the impression that this should be a place where people live. But of course, as they get closer and lower in altitude, you realize not only is there a, a society here, a population, but they're on the absolute fringe. There's this very sad orphanage, which we come to in the next scene. Um, An and, orphanage, and, literally in a dump. Yeah, like that. That's where they send these kids. So the kids and, and these other people and the marauders and stuff are clearly seen by the film, by the the society outlaid in the film as garbage. And you know, you you get a lot of texture from this. And then I think the other thing that that has always struck me about this scene is the sound design is absolutely incredible. It's just mm-hmm. it's this ridiculously detailed, super. Um, kind of spiky and calm and scary and then not and and it has it has its own kind of internal tension just from the sound yeah and sound is often where science fiction really gets to flex uh, uh, separate from other genres and mm-hmm. even more so than any genre probably because you are for the most part creating sound effects from scratch from absolutely nothing with very little reference point yeah. uh, based in like reality or you don't at least you can approach it that way I, I think that what they do in this film is extend what the sounds that we know from reality into like a familiar context that is still mm-hmm. very science fictiony, very futuristic, and very like believable. Mm-hmm. And it did; it got the Oscars for sound editing and mixing, yep. which um, is a great combo to get at the Oscars. Actually, yeah, it speaks to the sound department. No, I love like there's a lot. I, I I love a scene like this where there isn't a lot of dialogue, but they just show you things unprepared things that just add to your understanding of how this world might work so again like yeah they're flying through this dump community um they're at low altitude and people start firing bullets at them and he just pulls up to upper altitude not really a lot of panic and then this guy fires this harpoon into the side of the spinner which has like uh, a function of developing like a natural emp where this kite comes off of the the harpoon goes up into the clouds and 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 acts as a lightning rod and knocks out all the electronics in the car and knocks out uh, joy as well uh and yeah get, i call again, it the emp kite yeah okay almost certainly what they what they would have called it and uh i love like again like as great as the sound design is like good sound design is knowing when you should take away and the silence that you get yep. in the wake of that emp is so impactful uh, as yeah, like Anna Darmus has one line just saying Kay's name before she sort of glitches out, and you have Ryan Gosling trying to do just the right amount of like not maybe panic, but like preparation for what he knows is going to come. Yeah, when he realizes that they've they've kind of hit their zenith and they're starting to now come down, you can see it in his face before they give you the dashboard shot of the rapidly raising horizon line, and it's this like perfect bit of silence that goes like almost like you take a breath and then they're going you go over the roller coaster yeah yeah it's great so yeah, it's so I good th- i thought he handled that so well like acting wise 
Gosling handles that so well because he is playing a robot that shouldn't be, say, let's say, panicked, but he understands the scenario and still fears his own demise. So there's like a conflict at work within his replicant brain at this point, which is really cool. Yeah, you kind of see it all like all the wires flickering. And I, I think the other thing that's special about this scene, and it, it's not exclusive because we've been outside at other points in this movie, but this is kind of the first part where we where we see a wider scale to the world. One that requires a title card, for example. Yeah. And, and so, so far we've seen the farmhouse, inside of the car, Joshi's office, Kay's apartment, the LAPD, you know, the, these areas that are kind of confined um, paintings of, of a scene. And then here we're seeing the landscape. And yeah. we're seeing people that aren't part of the film otherwise. It further establishes the sort of like have-not-have have quality of, of the Blade Runner world and that the people in the city actually don't have it that bad. They don't actively live in a dump, right? Mm-hmm. And, uh, and to kind of see that and then to have a little later in this scene to see the way that love via Wallace is able to operate in this part of the world with complete impunity. There's no discussion of the legality of what she does here. Um, despite the fact yeah, that like she's not thing, a like cop, K, right? K, yeah, K is a representative of the LAPD, and there's no point where he's like, we have a private company um, employing a drone strike in San Diego. Yep. Like, it's not even brought up. No one, like, it's just, it's taken as a matter of fact. Also, and, and the fact that she can do so in comfort yeah. uh, is wild. I, I also think you can add to that because K is also on that path. He does not identify himself as a police officer. Yeah. Right. You know, he wakes yeah. up. He wakes up as they put this sort of suction mount carbon saw against his door, and then as soon as he hits the button for the door, they back off. He gets out, and it's not like he says, "LAPD, everybody disperse. This is a crime site, or whatever." Like whatever you would say in twenty forty nine as a cop, he just <sighs> says nothing, and the first guy comes at him and gets what's for for sure. Doesn't yeah, go so well for that get, dude. He gets baned. Do, yeah. <laughs> does that speak to? the futility of law enforcement at this point in time or does it suggest that k is here on unofficial business i saw it as more of a painting of how valueless these people are this is a lawless land yeah. this is outside of the la wall anything goes here um and he's at, he's operating basically uh if, if you approach you die you know first yeah. guy gets his back broken at least two other guys get dropped and then as he starts to assess the the mounting the number of marauders marauders the militia that's coming over this hill luckily he doesn't have to make these decisions because we suddenly have the the whistle and the, the pop of these uh missiles coming in mm-hmm. which just eviscerate people and like the 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 explosions are like like number one there are explosions that hit these marauders and there are other ones where it's just like debris mm-hmm. and detritus that that explodes away and it almost looks like big bones like you're almost like in a in like an elephant graveyard or something yeah, i for love sure. i love how that operates but yeah just in terms of like the um the class um disparity at play here the idea that love is getting is getting a manicure while she's doing this like instead of like i think your first most natural impulse might be to have her at like a remote battle station in the wallace hq like she's looking at screens she's controlling something it's so she's got her head back um this guy i love the production design and the guy who's doing her nails he's got like this rubberized suit and like all these massive like magnifying lenses and stuff yeah um but yeah Yeah, what would you call the process that's happening there it's like a he's like he's like imprinting like a holographic on her nails or something yeah and there's like a slight sound to it, like almost yeah. like a sizzle, not quite like a tattoo gun, but like it, it has its own little right. noise that's like static sound. 
Yeah. And when you paint that, and then I also like that in in this one scene, we get to see the world through almost every main character's eyes. Mm-hmm. So yeah, we see the way that the way that Kay responds to threat. We see Joy looking out the window and seeing more of the world, and she doesn't look happy, right? Curious, maybe uh, dumbfounded, perhaps. And then, of course, we see um, love, and her view of the world is from three, four miles up, both yeah. both figuratively and now literally. She's getting her nails done while she kills 50 or 60 people um, and all, all in the hopes of supporting someone who's really not on her side. You know, their, their goals are aligned for the moment, but won't stay that way. And, and this is, I think, more of her, her sort of Wallace-inspired God complex Yeah. Um, to, to, to really throw power around when it's needed. You know, sheer, It's like you're, you're throwing lightning in, bolts off of Olympus. Yeah, and there's a few points in this movie where she acts out violently and and i think you can include this drone strike but also a couple others that we can list at some point and and her touch is limited but devastating and and i think we mm-hmm. see that every time that she kind of touches down and it kind of adds weight to that final scene uh, the 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 true crash scene at the end of the movie yeah the the difference between some of her scenes and this one for me is just how calm and collected she is like yeah she's sitting in this like decadent home she's got someone working on her nails yet she's nonchalantly head back inflicting violence upon countless people and seemingly like doesn't flinch in any way in fact at the end of it she's trying to like doubles down and says get up do your job yeah mm-hmm. which honestly that that part actually gets me every time i'm like i think that was too many too many one, lines one line too many yeah, yeah. There's something about it that I was like, I think they added one. There. It's almost like her, yeah, her being glib at yeah. this point, right? Just being like, this is so easy. But maybe that adds to it because, yeah. like you said, this is like all this is like the two visual, like the visual contrast of the two scenes going on here is like really important for kind of like, I guess, visualizing the class system at play in this world. And mm-hmm. it's not really until this point that you get such a clear cut contrast. I think we also get a, another kind of insight into Kay and Joy's relationship because yeah. she glitches out. He gets out of the car. Every uh, The little battle sequence happens, and we don't get a scene where he goes back in the car, picks her up, makes sure she's okay. As much as she is kind of his partner, they're not partners. She's a a, a tool for his relaxation or, or his uh, personal development or something like that. But in this mode... He's a he's a warrior. He's the fine tip of a sto- of a of a of a spear, and he's mm-hmm. not considering the fact that she got knocked out of reality for a few minutes or whatever. And it's later on that she shows back up, sometime yeah, later actually. Yeah, that's a good point. Because yeah, basically once the drone strike is over, he goes back to the car, shuts the door, and sets up the drone to mm-hmm. keep an eye on it so he can go do his job. Yeah, it's a there's there's no uh, you know there's no actual humanity human qualities in this scene for them to exalt it's more the opposite it's seeing what the world has become as soon as you step outside of of la and and as soon as you start to operate in the same sort of modes that that these people are operating which are outside of the law outside Mm -hmm. of um general ethics and and morality and that sort of thing it's this very kind of singular power hungry um unstoppable sort of force that you get from this scene and it's something that villeneuve does really well we see similar elements in this scene in the bridge scene in sicario we see it in the uh, trailer attack scene in wind river 
Uh, there's mm-hmm. there's mm-hmm. several of these ones where there's this patience that just ramps up tension, and then when it finally unleashes, it's so much more valuable than if they just showed you the cool fight scene. Yeah. Even And, and on a slightly more compacted scale, the scene that we looked at in Ansandi, which has a very a very different take on building tension by jumping into it, mm. um, which it's it's wild that Denny was able to do both of those because they're kind of different ends of the spectrum in terms of how you edit tension. Yeah, I would say that for the violent parties involved in both our Ensemble scene and this scene, though, we're talking about presenting characters in almost a non-human way mm-hmm. in order to kind of show the brutality of violence in these moments. Mm-hmm. And in this case, we're actually working with non-humans. In Ensemble, it's just kind of meant to convey that. The humanity yeah. loss in war. I, yeah. I would exactly. S- I'd say, Tay, they even take it a step further in that in this one, in this scene from Blade Runner 2049, the, the environment, the literal environment they're going into is a weapon. The lightning is used against them. Um, right. you get mm-hmm. um, you, you you get a lot more weather that like we, we've had a little bit of the snow we've had a little bit of the rain but now it's it's become a factor that they have to deal with and I think that there's so much uh, density in this scene that it makes his his movement from one place to another from LA to the orphanage much more grounded much more real in some ways even mm-hmm. though of course it's painting a scene that hopefully is never reality for any of us um, but it, it I think that a lot of a lot of the way that he approaches the scenarios he's put in is this very stoic internal kind of, you can see the math moving in his head, but he's keeping it inside. And this one it's inside, but you can't deny the outsideness of this scene, the piles of trash, the weather, the, you know, approaching what's essentially a, a, an embattlement camp uh, while trying to get to this orphanage. And I think it makes the orphanage scene a lot more toothy, like a lot more dire and demure and, and upsetting and, and sort of, on the fringe it has I a also, mad max like, I, quality I think, to it yeah i think it preps you for that scene too because taken on its own like again if you like you said if this was just a transition scene if you just had some shots of the spinner going from la to the wall to outer san diego to the dump mm-hmm. and you go right to the scene where the guy um i i can't remember the actor's name off the top of my head um but he, he he's pretty great um basically right off the bat just offers to sell him any kind of kid for any kind of purpose. The scene almost ramps you up into that. Cause it like it, 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 it gives it the same amount or even more purchase, but to go from LA to a guy just being like, yeah, I got tons of kids. I, I can say any kind you want, they'll do anything. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it, it's way more effective with this, um, with how he uses this scene of just getting a character from one place to the next. I agree. Now I, I will say like the, maybe it's not even part of this scene, technically but the whole lead up like from when Kay and joy leave los angeles and you pass the sign that says you're now leaving greater los angeles the, mm-hmm. the this is kind of what we talked about at the beginning of the podcast today like the time it takes for that journey to happen like the the meandering pacing yeah allows for you to kind of get a sense of this distance and the vastness but also like how the two worlds are separated and like visually and geographically Absolutely, yeah. and, and it is a third set piece that is very different from the sort of central LA and and the Vegas set pieces, and of course, very yeah. different from the opening scene with the farm, um, where yeah, it, it's a whole different world with different rules, and clearly, it's not Kay's first time there. He doesn't seem surprised by anything that happens in this mm-hmm. scene, he, even to the extent of having the the drone strike above him. You see him look up and catch the reflection and in some ways i think they only did the catch the reflection thing so they could do it again 
um, in Vegas when they've got when they have the binocular scene and they're trying to yeah. figure out if somebody followed him uh, to Decker's you know sort of Vegas hideout. Mm-hmm. Agreed. And like just to touch on that part too, when Decker looks through the binoculars in that scene, he doesn't see anything. So I also kind of wonder if this is Kay's like replicant eyes in their like his he has like a verging on POV that can pick it up. Yeah, yeah. I kind of wonder because just because of the Deckard scene later. Yeah, and Deckard mm-hmm. has to trust this oscilloscope on his desk uh, that yeah. somebody's out there, and and Kay is able to very quickly pick it up, find the the sort of specular triangle out on the distance and then they have to adapt to it from there it's a, it's it's one of the few moments of kind of like classic action in the in the in the film is that uh the, the couple minutes around that sequence and i think it's set up here where you realize not only just how powerful love is um and, and what she has at her disposal but also some of the metrics of of how this interfaces with um things like sightline and and sky and and the rest of it hmm and I know we already kind of briefly mentioned the supporting cast, but it's worth noting again, like Sylvia Hoax in this scene is incredible yep. and her yep. coldness is truly terrifying. Mm-hmm. Agreed. And and it's another it's another super up close eye shot, which is a, a cornerstone right. of the the Blade Runner kind of iconography. It's no, almost you know, a Ridley Scott trope. Yeah, for sure. And yeah. and you know, to see that in the original with the Voight Kampf test and and an ad- adaptation of a Canadian military technology that was used at one point to try and determine if people were gay, uh, that, which is what, what was used in, in the original uh, Blade Runner, sort of the eye scan uh, mm. equipment. See how you react. Yeah, yeah. and uh, oh, okay. which is a, a, a pretty dark thing to bring up, I admit, but uh, that was a, a thing that we actually did at some level. Um, mm. But then... Uh, and that was specifically the Canadian government, eh? It, it, my understanding is it was used by the Canadian military, yeah. I, uh, wow. I I didn't go any further. Like I didn't go super far down that rabbit hole. I found that quite upsetting. Uh, yeah, were it true, of course. Um, but the uh, to have them do another play on the eye thing, but now the interface is warfare. So you you have the sort of heads up display, which is a, a mm. sci fi trope in and of its own. This idea that you would yeah. have the computer right over your eye, and there's you and know that it's it's voice controlled. Yeah, right. Very very modern to like the, you know the twenty teens mm-hmm. and sort of the way that we interact with our technology. And you never see the end point. They don't show you the drone. They don't show you if it's a plane or like a flying saucer. You just, just missiles. It's just omnipresent yeah. power. And you don't really even see, there's no like, you know, catching the missile in the air and following it to the ground. You just see it smash into the ground. You see the effects yeah, of, it's of a, her words. It's, yeah, it's, it's, it's an interesting way to go about it that kind of denies a lot of the way that we would normally try and highlight this sort of action uh, mm-hmm. by not showing you the source, but rather showing you the control the level of control that she has. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, yeah, I think it's a, it's a wonderful scene. I think it's a scene that's easy. You know, I di- it doesn't come up when I Googled the list of the big scenes from this movie. It, it doesn't include in that. And, and I think mm-hmm. that's one of the things I like about it. But it's always a point in the movie where I get a different sort of energy moving forward after it, yeah. after seeing that and, and uh, see, getting to see Kay kind of flex a little bit and, and just that he, he never looks stressed at all no. um and even even when suddenly there's just stuff you know missiles raining down from the sky you see him glance up and then just kind of be like i don't know if he i don't know if we're supposed to know that he knows it's wallace who else would it be i guess mm. right um as much as he's just kind of like well the way is clear i'm going to keep moving yeah no yeah it's a, a phenomenal scene and like you said it's something that did not have to do what it did it could have achieved its end in a much more simple way but it 
took that opportunity to show you more about about the characters and uh and show you what's at play here uh so i think it's a a great a great uh great scene to bring to the potluck yeah i appreciate that one james it was not a scene that was like in my, my top radar. in my like three scenes that i was gonna maybe choose for this well, super it was not one of them so i was really stoked you picked something off the board for me yeah i'm glad no and i i really uh, yours was on my short list so this is uh mm. it, it, i think we've got a good a good trio going yeah. here well let's dive into it then okay yeah so for our final scene on the potluck episode uh i had well i had two titles for this scene uh first one being hello harrison my second title being welcome to new vegas um <laughs> the scene uh takes place for uh, at an hour 40 and 50 seconds in and lasts to about an hour 50 into the movie so it's about a nine minute scene uh it's a long one and there's almost no dialogue once again um once again the scene will reflect kind of the patience and pacing of the movie uh probably even more so than any of the other ones that we've discussed so far but in this scene Officer K investigates the highly radioactive remains of Las Vegas in order to find the maker or the source of the wooden horse from his implanted memories. He eventually finds the disgruntled Rick Deckard after finding an apiary, and uh, the two have a violent altercation throughout various sectors of a casino, concluding in a holographic Elvis projection concert room. Yeah, I mean, I would like to point out it's largely Elvis, but we also we get one little flash of um, of uh, the Candelabra. We we talked, we recommended his movie a little while ago. Um, oh, um, uh, oh man, I'm blanking so hard. Um, oh, with Damon Liberace, 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 yeah, yeah, yeah. Liberace's on stage. You get some go-go dancers, but yeah, it is largely Elvis. Um, it's a it's a great way to uh, to light a fight sequence. I think. And to make it incredibly unpredictable because mm. it keep like the, I guess the part I missed in my summary is that the holographic images are glitching in and out or on and off and it becomes a very unpredictable soundscape for the fight scene to take place and it makes it very tense. Yeah. yeah. It's a, it's an interesting way to obfuscate what would otherwise be, I think actually a, a fairly um, direct altercation because how could officer k ever lose in a fight to um mm-hmm. who we we largely believe to be a human deckard and uh, and that is sort of how it concludes with k just allowing harrison ford to uh to clock him over and over until ford gets tired of it yeah and decides yeah. he li- hears a song he likes so, time yeah. to slow down but I, time to time to get some uh, johnny walker black the, the the one that stands out for me about this is you know this is a i i see this as being the kind of Blade Runner expression of a of a pretty popular like um, action movie trope, which is the the nightclub scene, right? Yeah. Where you have yeah. a, a busy, loud, unpredictable environment in which you have to do something that typically you don't want to do with a lot of other people around. So whether that's Collateral or John Wick or or, or something, yeah. some of these ones that have had some of the best ones, they do it. And now you have the isolation of it just being the two of them. You also have the the clear. They make very specific points in letting you know that that Harrison Ford knows the environment really well. He knows where the power is to turn mm-hmm. everything on in the room. Um, he eventually takes a, a shot, uh, you know, within inches of of Gosling. Uh, so he also knows where Gosling has decided to hide. Um, and that's crazy because you you're watching gosling hide for a good minute mm-hmm. at that point and you know that he hasn't revealed himself so it's just instinctual on mm-hmm. harrison ford's yeah character, I, or, yeah deckard's part i think they and do it adds a, this 
I just gonna say it adds like this um this propensity to flinch as an audience member because you never know when the music is gonna kick in super loud. Mm-hmm. The lights are going off at a different uh, rhythm. And then, like, the gunshot comes on and in a completely different rhythm as well. Same with when someone will choose to pop up from behind, like, a cocktail bar yep. and, like, try to land a punch or, or throw Harrison Ford around. It's a, it, there's, a, there's a lovely unpredictability to how this scene plays out. Yeah, I think they do that again by, you know, a lot of it has, and this is pretty prevalent in a, a fair amount of the interior photography for Blade Runner, is this kind of snooted shot. Um, where the light is coming in a channel that the actor kind of moves in and out of. Um, mm-hmm. There's a lot of that in Blade Runner with light just on the person's face. You even see it in the way that they light um, Rachel, the the replicant version, or the, the 2049 version of Rachel later on. She had, yeah. They have her walk into a beam of light, which is a bit of a rip on how she comes in in, in Blade Runner. Uh, uh, not a rip in a bad way, but a, a, a reference, and um, and I think in Same this with how they bring in Ford in this one exactly, yeah, yeah, and, and I think the cool thing with this is this scene shows you that Ford has more tricks up his sleeve, despite being an aging human or an older replicant, your choice. Um, <laughs> but he's not outmatched by, like, he knows he can't outfight Gosling, but he's not outmatched in his own in, on on his home turf here in uh, New Vegas. And uh, and I think it's an interesting thing. And then, like like you mentioned, Tim, there's there's some action that actually happens almost entirely in the dark, yeah. and they only give you a sliver, a beam of light to tell you how quickly something's moving or that somebody's left a hiding spot. And it's an interesting way. Whereas normally you would have the light on them and they would move into the darkness to suggest that they were leaving a hiding spot. And this is a bit of the opposite. Um, and I think it's a, a fabulous thing when you combine this really detailed hologram in the background that's kind of coming in and out of the sound quality of it and and the dancers are moving around so there's this dynamic quality that that otherwise you would have a very classic sort of space it's a it's sort of a dinner lounge um Mm. but in the dark uh it's quite a scene for sure well and actually like i loved your i love your point on how deckard's character uses his home turf to his advantage the one point where this becomes a problem for him is when the go-go dancer kind of flashes up right in front of him. And then that's when, when uh, mm-hmm. Kay is able to jump out and attack him. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, uh, but once again, that just shows to the unpredictability of this, of this room, which just provides like one of the coolest fight room scenarios, at least in my opinion, mm-hmm. I don't, I'm not saying this is the greatest fight scene, but it's one of my favorite environments for a fight scene to ever happen in, in any film. Yeah, no, that, I think that was a great point that you brought up, James, that it, it's a great take on this thing that you do see in tons of other action movies where the the things that are at play are like, yeah. I don't want to accidentally shoot a, you know, a, a patron or a dancer, like in the yep. collateral scenes. It's it's really like it's packed shoulder to shoulder in this in this um, in this L.A. club uh, or in John Wick, where it's, like, it's just one assailant after another. And right. in this one, there's nobody in there except for them. Um, this place is crowded and packed. Yeah, and and Gosling does yeah. not want to kill him. Mm-hmm. He doesn't even want to hurt him. Like he literally, like he's very clear. What do you want from me? I'm here to ask you some questions. And then that's when the shooting starts. Well, I, I love how that plays out where Gosling obviously is a replicant. He's fast enough to see, like he says, I just have some questions. And Ford goes like, what questions? And then raises the gun a centimeter and he immediately jump, throws himself back over the balcony yeah. and tries to get out of there. And they even, they even, there's that little take in the, the scene after where they're having their drink and he goes like, 
again, he goes like, what, what do you need for, or what do you want from me? I don't remember the exact words. And he says, I just have some questions. Like, mm-hmm. we've been here. Yeah. <laughs> we could have, we could have skipped what happened. <laughs> yeah. But again, like we we're kind of going in reverse order here. The, we, we started with the end of the scene. The, the beginning is this phenomenally slow buildup that lets you live in this world. These buildings from uh, Hungary where mm-hmm. they, where they filmed, uh, a different exterior than the interior, but both, uh, as I understand it, uh, real real buildings in Hungary that give you a completely different architecture from the cyberpunk neo-futuristic stuff in L.A. or obviously the the dump, rusted yeah. sort of homes that are under big satellite dishes. And the, the smoke, like the orange haze of the, whether it's the, the radio, you know, they reference that, that the way that they knew to go there was because the, the level of radium in the little wooden horse so maybe it's a nuclear fallout thing. Maybe it's a sand thing or a, or a, a fire thing. You know, I, I lived in Vancouver in 2016, 2016. When this movie came out, there was smoke in the air. And you'd wake up some mornings and everything was just kind of like reddish orange and, and strange. And this has turned up to about 200% um, on these sequences where you start to lose track of other colors. Mm-hmm. It's such a contrast from everything that, that comes before it. It almost like it's a good timing, especially, you know, you're at one of those late shows kind of wakes you up again. Oh, for sure. Yeah, it's almost at the two-hour mark. Yeah. So it is like kind of a reset button in terms of the visuals, at least. And like I think the beginning of the scene initiates a new sense of pacing that is then carried out throughout. I, well, I guess let's, then we jump into an action scene, but I think like it almost is a reset button when the scene begins because it's just following Gosling as he meanders through the city and you're seeing these Vegas landmarks, but it's all unfamiliar and covered of sand. I really do like the small moment at the apiary where he sticks mm-hmm. his hand in the bee in the beekeeper hive. Yep. And then when he leaves the scene, you just like he just lets his hand drop, and you just see like all the bees on it, because mm-hmm. obviously he's a replicant; he doesn't care. But also, like the first time where we see something living that isn't human, are there any animals before this? Like you get the dog inside and the bees here, but there aren't like are there like street dogs in L.A. that I'm not remembering? No, because I think that's why he asks if the dog is real later. Yeah, because it, it's not a. Th- uh, I don't and think like, you and, have. And in the original one, you have uh, like the owl, the owl is yeah. an obvious replicant and stuff like that. So I don't think animals really exist. And and you're laughing, yeah. James, because the response to that line is maybe <laughs> the best line in the movie. So good. Is it real? I don't know. Ask him. <laughs> I don't know, right? Like it shows you shows you Deckard's opinion of the entire process of determining what you are anymore. He couldn't he couldn't care less. Well, or yeah, or, or it's a direct a reference to the to the test. You have to ask yeah. questions. You want to know? Ask mm-hmm. questions. Yeah, I I think it's kind of winking at the audience about the whole debate between Deckard being a replicant or being human too. And I know that's something that apparently has been decided by Ridley Scott and Harrison Ford, but the, he refuses to say which I it don't is. Care. I don't care either. I think it's a fun debate. <laughs> yeah. And uh, this podcast is not going to state it one way no. or the other. If nothing else, that dog drinks uh, Black Label off the floor. So yeah, at least get that uh, dog a, a bowl. Yeah. Goodness. <laughs> yeah, I, I really wanted to, uh, I guess, expand the scene into the next scene. But then we were getting into far too much dialogue that would have been a lot to uh, unpack. The next one is but, a great scene. For sure, but the production design of this hotel or this sorry this casino is insane to me. Uh, we already touched on the orange haze that kind of exists in the atmosphere around, but also 
dominates the interiors of this building with like sometimes it turns like a little bit more green the more interior into the building they get Mm -hmm. and then obviously the really dark fight scene room but i just like the atmosphere that the exteriors are kind of bringing into this interior space Mm -hmm. and then also the set design is very cool like it's harrison ford's lived in space so there's a lot of like knickknacks and mess and it kind of is like a fantasy experience like getting a casino to live in by yourself for 20 years what do you do with it yeah you just apparently you just read treasure island and other classics when he he glances over at that bar and there's like a waterfall of bottles and you're like okay so somebody's subsisting on on whiskey here (laughs) yeah And, and then of course the next thing we see is the dog in full shadow and it's a very the the where they place him in the frame is that sort of mid ground horror placement yeah. Where you're yeah. like, oh, is, yeah, yeah. is that? Are we about to have an attack? Is he going to get attacked by a dog? Because mm-hmm. there's a lot of like uh, dog analogies to replicants. Mm-hmm. These kind of servile, yeah. good boy, yeah, and mm-hmm. uh, and kind of his relationship with Joshi is is kind of in that in that vein. And then to have, I believe, love says some it says bad dog too, something to like him. that. Yeah. yeah, like at at the at the end of the Vegas sequence. That's right. So then it's it's fascinating to see not only the dog as being kind of the intro to Decker because the dog comes from one side almost like a, a battle strategy, and Decker's in the other side of the hallway, gun already drawn, the famous gun. I mean, one of the most famous um, yeah weapons in um in maybe non sword move movie world. Uh, mm-hmm. And yeah, really, and it comes out of the darkness, you know, barrel first. Uh, love it. Yeah. yeah. More, more Western iconography there, which I, I think is just fantastic. And yeah, like the standoff, the classic standoff. Well, position. he definitely like, and the other thing is that like he summons in, in a way, in terms of the way that the scene breaks down, uh, the dog and Deckard by playing the key, which was the dead key in Sapper Morton's right. home that had the little tin box with one of his clues to the entire mystery in it. So nice little... Nice little thing there, and then, and, and then and we again, see him uh, fail the lie. Yeah, yeah. Like, why? What are you doing here? Whatever he goes, I heard the piano, and like yeah, he doesn't sell like, the like, line don't, at all. Don't, don't lie, come on, man. Like yeah. he says, don't lie. That's rude. Yeah, yeah. Um, I was actually going to ask you guys about that line because it seems like just kind of funny that Kay would even bother lying at that point. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's weird that he would offer an answer because so much of the next yeah. of the rest of their conversations together are non-answers in many ways yeah or like a you figure it out you're the genius mm-hmm. uh, sort of attitude and i guess the last thing i wanted to touch on in this scene is that there is a sense of mutual respect between the two combatants absolutely uh k seems to under like tim you already mentioned it but k seems to understand as soon as deckard is asking the question and then he's kind of even hints at raising his gun he knows what's going to happen he knows he's going to yeah. shoot him so he like he's already given Deckard the utmost respect because he knows he's a former Blade Runner. Mm-hmm. And I like that then it's kind of reciprocated by Ford's character kind of realizing he's not going to win the fight in the end. And then also like his resistance to answer questions directly when that's Kay's job. Yep. Yeah. And then in yeah. the later sequence, we see Kay save him uh, in the, in a scene beforehand, we get that we get sort of a, a follow up from Edward J. James almost as to what he's been up to, or at least what, mm-hmm what he perceives Decker would have been up to, right? In, in retirement is, uh, yeah. is sort of that nebulous term within this world. And uh, I think it's, uh, it's, it's, it's a, yeah, it is an interesting thing to get some, yeah, there, there's a dynamic there that is like we're on this, in some ways we're cut from the same cloth, even if we're not, yeah. we don't want the same things from what the world has become. Mm-hmm. 
And that's not even to say that Deckard is a replicant either. I just think that there's like it's the profession, yeah. res- the respect for yeah. the profession itself, Re- which is really yeah. Regardless cool. of what they are, they're both Blade Runners. Yeah, right. Which again ties back to that first scene where a lot of the discussion of who are you comes down to I'm a farmer. Are you a cop? Yep. Um, that's yeah. a good way to take it full circle there, Tim. Well done. Yeah, I get it every now and then. <laughs> <laughs> I think we can. Uh, we're uh, we're we're going for the record on uh, on length this time, so I think we can shift over into uh, shoutouts. Um, Tay, do you want to you want to start us off? Uh, well, I guess I wanted to expand on the scene because the scene pro- uh, previous and after the scene are both so amazing. Mm-hmm. But I really like the scene right before the scene I mentioned, um, and it's when uh, Love and sorry Joshi what's, Joshi. Love and Joshi have the interaction in Joshi's office, and it is such a brutal encounter. Uh, mm-hmm. And this is where you really see Sylvia Hoax kind of like her acting really is probably this is my favorite scene with her in it. And yep. you see like her actually like break inside, and like her tears just start coming uncontrollably. Um, I think it was in like True Detective season three where a glass was broken in someone's hand and then it was crushed more yeah i've seen it in more than one movie like it's definitely it's been used a couple times and i think it's a pretty effective way to make you feel it you know what broken glass feels like in your hand yeah and then have it like like to like you're the one holding the glass and then it's broken in your hand and you can't let go that and she she doubles down she squeezes further later like it really twists the knife and you know as good as sylvia hoaxes is in the scene uh uh, it's also worth noting how good robin wright is in this movie Mm -hmm. as like uh, the most robotic human I could imagine. Defeated. Which is, yeah, exactly. Yeah. She's like, she doesn't have, there's no consequence. She just has her job. Yeah. Yeah. It's just a matter of like, again, I like, so I had mentioned this before we started recording, talking with James, but one of those criticism videos I looked at, one of their examples of, of scenes in this movie that don't accomplish anything was this one where they said basically, Joshi gets killed and then immediately love just goes to her computer and gets the info she wanted. So what was the point? And I think that completely overlooks the fact that Joshi's doing what Sapper was doing. They're dying for the mission they believe in. And it's what many of the characters end up doing in this movie. And it also tells you even more about love. She, she kills her. She's again doing the thing where she like emotionlessly cries. Cause I think she sees what Wallace isn't to her. Joshi, died defending k even um in a futile uh way right she gained him an extra 10 seconds and that's something that love doesn't have because again is she the best is she ever going to be good enough for wallace right i think it's a really powerful scene for both those characters it's kind of scene where if i was robin Wright, i'd be like this is this is the scene you want right you get to pour a drink you get to die for your mission it's a it's a it's a great little conclusion. And but, uh, she just comes tough. off as a badass. She's like, "Do what you got to do." Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It is it is that kind of like uh, ge- a general at the end of the war. Like, mm-hmm. all right, well, this is what it's come to, but let's not let's not act like we didn't make this decision a long time ago. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's I like I don't I see the point of maybe drawing criticism to maybe some scenes that don't fit in the movie as well as others, but this is a really important scene to me because it's human it's the human suffering the consequence from the consequences here mm-hmm. unlike almost every other scene in the movie that focuses on the replicant characters uh, 
like Robin Wright is one of the very few humans in the movie that has like a developed sense of personality. Mm-hmm. She's she's like the closest to being human, I'd say, because your your other options are maybe Deckard or Wallace, who all of them have these complexes or may not even be human. Mm-hmm. Um, That's correct. So yeah, I think I think it's a fantastic scene. Yeah. Um, huh. I uh, yeah. So my shout out is just uh, the design of the Wallace Corp headquarters. I really love oh, the idea. Yeah. Um, you get when you first see it, you get these external shots, and if you if you have it in mind from the re- from the first movie, you know that the Tyrell headquarters is like this ziggurat. Um, it's this great like historic design of something a big powerful base to a tower, right? And it's obviously it's massive in the original Blade Runner, and then Wallace, who um, like you know merged or acquired Tyrell at some point, built these big sort of triangles next to it that i mean i saw people's like armchair expert like calculations on their size that they estimate somewhere around 18 kilometers tall it's insane the scale at play here when you go from the tyrell corporation you see the the uh like the spinner going in in the original blade runner to what wallace puts there now Mm -hmm. and then inside uh like i love the idea that like the pyramids are what you see in las vegas and pyramids i think are your your easiest i icon and shorthand for saying this person wants a legacy they want to last forever they don't do that with wallace how they achieve that is in inside you have this natural in big quotes daylight that washes across all the places that they're walking through implying that you're you're walking through the ages your time is moving faster around you because wallace is forever and this is his you know his mount olympus it's whatever you want to call it has this weird natural sandstone there's water reflections everywhere give you all these things like water as a as a critical natural resource right like k takes a shower for like three seconds in his apartment and it's with like largely um disinfected water things like that so you can tell they're like all of this is a big flex it's saying i'm going to be here forever i'm bigger than tyrell ever was and it, it it builds perfectly to that first monologue you get from from Leto. I, I also see it as um like from an architectural standpoint, it's it's the direct it's the direct uh, suggestion of old money in this world. Mm. It's it's mm. the pharaohs, it's old, it's ancient yeah. even. And it's so much metallic. of the right, and so much of the 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 external world is brutalist, right? which is a, a postmodern thing. So buildings used to start with a wide base and go to the top and suggest that hard work gets you to the sky and beyond. Mm-hmm. And, and brutalism is, is a different thing. And then if you go backwards, you go to this all-encompassing power of the pharaohs. They ruled the land, and, uh, and they did so with a, with a predominant sort of aesthetic. And, uh, and I think that's, that's kind of shown here as sort of a suggestion that that things may change, like you said, things may change, but like Wallace is kind of forever. Mm-hmm. And uh, and then on top of that, when you go inside, the thing that I'm always surprised by is how much they keep the kind of tomb-esque qualities yeah. of everything in there. There's not there's not rooms full of screens. There's not um, mm-hmm. there's not you know telephones on the desks. There's not a lot of it. It seems like these spaces that could be used for almost anything. And what they're used for is for you know wallace to implying a message yeah exactly like some (laughs) sort of grand analogy or or metaphor about life and death and the value or inherent lack of value in life and 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 the struggle that it is to to take yourself from the limits of being human to being something more to to being limited by not being able to procreate or create those who can 
uh, and having to default on the source code of your own kind of humanity. And I think all of that's like painted into this world. Yeah. And and you never for a moment could mistake a character being in the Wallace building with being mm-hmm. anywhere else, which is perfect. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's, it's, it's phenomenal design. And uh, it, it gets me every time. I think it's such a, it's a, Early in the movie, outside of going to Las Vegas, it's a powerful visual diversion from the rest of the movie so far. For sure. And I think that's the point of his intentional design of the of his own home, right? Is mm-hmm. to create something that is so natural compared to the industrial world outside. Yeah. And uh, James, what's your shout out this week? Mine is uh, for Coco. I think he does uh, oh, the Coco. most with the least in this movie. David Dastmelchain. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. I think I got that right. Maybe not. Um, I haven't heard it before. I don't know. But yeah, uh, he's. Uh, I've heard it yeah. Dalmachian. Before, okay, well, maybe it's Dal, Dal Dast Malchian. Dast Malchian. <laughs> Let's go with that. Um, yeah. My apologies, David. Should you ever, should you ever hear this? Um, but I think he's just he's absolutely fantastic in this movie, and he is that person who we see in all sorts of crime procedurals where you enter their world. And mm-hmm. and they're the one, they're the technician, they're the the autopsy specialist, they're the whatever, and you, they're a conduit for information, but they also offer context. And mm-hmm. so, when he makes the skin job comment, he then also apologizes, which is weirdly human. Um, yeah. Everyone else we've seen who has either said that or painted it on Kay's door or whatever, nobody's making apologies. But clearly, he realizes like, no, we are on the same playing field, and what I said was just very rude. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry. And then, of course, later on, he's also used um, as, as a, a, another example of, of uh, love's extreme power. Uh, a really rough death later in the movie. Yeah. Extremely yeah, it, affecting. It looks like she just hits him in the back of the neck and clearly his neck separated from the rest of his body. Yeah, she changes <laughs> his architecture. And yeah, he, like he, Peter he, Griffin he apparently, yeah, like drowns yeah. On, on his own blood. It's so, it's it's brutal. It is, it's brutal. And but, yeah, it's... Uh, it's He's a great little bit actor. He, yep. he's, he was in Prisoners as well. Mm-hmm. Definitely where they met. But yeah, And then and, uh, uh, Dark Knight. And then more mm-hmm. recently, just, just very recently, he was in uh, su- the new Suicide Squad. Mm. Yeah. Uh, Lots of fun in that. Yep. He's great in it. Uh, I, think, uh, I think he's fantastic. I, I hope to see him in more stuff. And I think he was really good in this role, which, uh, you know, the movie is a very specific. Everything it does is about specificity. And he mm-hmm. is a very specific uh, look and kind of tenor to the to the thing and, and clearly he knows some stuff and Kay's there operating on a slightly higher level when it comes to zoom in here look at this and then finds yeah. the serial number and all that and then to, to have him loop back around with the scene where uh, love is uh, you know stealing things from the ossuary it's a uh, it's an interesting role and uh, one that mm-hmm. I, I thought he did really well with and I, I know we've just praised Denis Villeneuve to high hell in this episode but his handling of that death scene of of Coco's character mm-hmm. or of Coco as a character is just brutal like mm-hmm. the way that you don't see the impact directly but then you just see the result on the floor and that's yep. like his head mm-hmm. way further forward than it should be yeah. he's bleeding from his ears and his eyes it's 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 real it's it's brutal it's, yeah. it's extremely yeah. violent yeah i'd say it's, is that the most graphic image of this whole film I think so. Like, especially like I'd say another another tough death, death know, the, is Joshi's, and it's not this bad. Joshi's is bad. I think the the failed um, birth, oh, birth yeah. the the birth assessment, mm-hmm. the context of that film, that scene, I find very uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and then I mean, there's a couple guys in the scene that I had picked that just 
blow into little bits, but I suppose that yeah. that's probably yeah. preferable to what happened to poor Coco. A little so. bit faster. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. And then, uh, yeah, for recommendations this week, um, I'll, uh, I'll kick it off. I think uh, Taylor's going to join me on this one. A bit of sad news uh, recently as we're recording this. Uh, Brad Allen, who's a stunt director, uh, passed away just recently. Now, this guy's a big deal because he was the first non-Asian stuntman to be to join Jackie Chan's crew he um he showed up uh, I guess uh to try out for when they were filming Mr. Nice Guy and he was hired on the spot uh he was such a uh, dedicated martial artist and uh and stunt actor and uh he later led one of Jackie's teams uh which led him to sort of bring a Hong Kong style and approach to the way that he does martial arts and stunts to a lot of western movies that you've almost certainly seen like uh Kick-Ass uh, Kingsman, that fight scene in the bar with Colin, Colin Firth, and the one in the church, which I think is pretty iconic oh, in yeah. terms of recent action movies. That's all his work, uh, and he worked with Edgar Wright as well. Um, so we've got linked in the show notes. There's a uh, there's a a tribute that Edgar Wright wrote for him, and sort of breaks down his career and what he was so good at, and why he was great to work with, and and things like that. And then also, I just say if you can find a copy, because it's really tough. Check out Gorgeous or Mr. Nice Guy. They're both Jackie Chan movies. The the stunts are, are top tier. And Gorgeous was a big deal for Brad Allen because he fights Jackie two or three times in that movie. It's a lot of like boxing and kickboxing. And he actually gets to do some acting. Um, probably his most iconic role in terms of what he did on camera. So if you can find a copy, it's not easy to stream or find elsewhere. Um, definitely check one of those out. And if not, check out uh, what Tay's going to recommend. Well, um... Yeah, just to add my sentiment to that, it's uh, really sad to hear that he passed. You know, he's very young and had mm-hmm. a very promising career ahead of him, seemingly. So really sad uh, loss in the movie industry. It's not too common that I even am aware of who a stunt choreographer is in a, in any given film. But uh, Brad Allen is one of the few that really stands out with his uh, work. Um, one of my favorite films of the past decade has was a uh, Scott Pilgrim versus the World, which is an Edgar Wright movie from mm-hmm. I believe 2010, mm-hmm. and it is not only chock full of amazing dialogue and editing, but Alan's fight choreography in the film works so well hand in hand with Wright's direction and sense of editing and pacing that I just think that they were a match made in heaven, and I it's really a shame that they couldn't go on to do more work together because it is. I, I think this movie is a perfect combination of action comedy. Um, it's a four quadrant film, mm-hmm. and it is quite unique in terms of its uses usage of CGI and uh, its uh, original media form, which is graphic novels, which I believe should be leaned into much more in when you're in making a graphic movies. novel film. Yeah, and uh, this is something that just one of the side notes of what this movie does really really well. Um, but watch it. Uh, it's a good time to watch anything with Brad Allen, the uh, choreography mm-hmm. in it right now because a tribute. So uh, that's my recommendation. Yeah. For the week. And keep an eye out. Apparently he, he worked on Shang-Chi, uh, which is coming out sometime soon. The next Marvel film, which is all about a martial artist hmm. and uh, the, the next Kingsman movie, the prequel. Uh, uh, he did the I'm action for that, that as well. So we'll check those out. Yeah, just just James went through what? the Kingsman recently. They're uh, they're fantastic yeah. for sure. Mm-hmm. That's a, that's a, a, a big hit to the industry. Yeah. Guy did some great work. Uh, so my recommendation is a YouTube channel that actually uh, Tim recommended to me. So I'm just passing it on. Uh, I've talked about it on my podcast. It's called The Corridor Crew. 
and it's a, uh, a a group of very talented kind of VFX artists and uh, and VFX specialists, and they do a pretty wide range of videos. They have a whole YouTube presence, and on top of that, a whole website as well. Um, but the stuff that I think they're probably most well known for and kind of have taken to a really extreme level in terms of quality and entertainment is uh, on on the weekends they do the uh, VFX artists react and uh, stunt men or women react where they take famous VFX or stunt work and actually sit down with mm-hmm. somebody else from the industry, often people from the scenes or friends of the people from the scenes that they're talking about. And they yep. break down the scenes and explain how they're done. And I love this kind of stuff because a little bit, it's some of it is like being shown a magic trick. Um, but, but other parts of it is like, like being sh- like watching the replay tape of an amazing piece of athletic uh, performance or you know the, a great play from from your favorite team or something like that and and being able to see it and then have the people kind of fill you in on how they did it especially when it's movies that I really love the John Wick stuff the more recent uh, Mission Impossible stuff uh, mm-hmm. uh, I really dig in into that kind of stuff I love watching some of the professionals react stuff that exists around the internet for the mm-hmm. gun work in John Wick or the the car work in in this movie and that kind of stuff and and they these guys do a really good job while also being like entertaining and keeping the production value mm-hmm. really high and also their pace is great they move yes. through a, a bunch of clips in in a short order and and i think it's worth it you know get into the channel subscribe and then just watch what they put out on a saturday because it's almost always super watchable and fun and you, and you learn something mm-hmm. along the way yeah yeah i almost yeah. wish that sometimes their cgi breakdowns or their martial arts breakdowns would last longer because mm-hmm. i just want them to dive through more clips every week but mm-hmm. at the same time they're pacing and their output is fantastic. So definitely a channel worth keeping an eye on on YouTube. Definitely subscribe to them. Mm-hmm. They produce great stuff every week. Yeah. yeah, Big fan. Every Saturday, it's fun to see what they have out. And then other than that, we, uh, as a show, we're definitely going to recommend you, uh, if you haven't, check out The Grey NATO. Uh, that's James's podcast, which he hosts with Jason Heaton. Um, you can find them on Instagram at The Grey NATO. And we definitely recommend check out one of their five film club episodes where... James and Jason both bring five movies apiece and just talk about why they like them and tell people why they should check them out. Yeah, it's less uh, less in depth than uh, than single serving cinema. Certainly, it's it's a little bit more superficial. Um, neither Jason nor I are like deep movie critics. We just you know big fans of a, kind of a certain type of movie, and uh, we've done five so far. You know, we're haven't done one in a little while. We'll probably uh, do one in the next little while. Uh, but yeah, we've got a decent list going at this point, so I guess that's a, a good crop of movies. But yeah, from um, lo- certainly lots of Villeneuve on that list, including uh, mm-hmm. 2049 made it into my picks pretty early. So uh, yeah. they, they've been fun to do. But uh, yeah, if, if, you're, if you're down for more movie chat or any of the topics that uh, Tay kindly listed at the top of the show, uh, check it out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's you guys cover so many good movies, like pretty much everything that we're looking to continue moving on towards in our podcast you guys have touched on in yours so that's pretty cool there's a lot of crossover between our upcoming list and uh and your your list from the first five sweet yeah seem to be on the same page with picking (laughs) movies off the beaten path but not too obscure and uh yeah with that that's our first potluck episode in the bag uh big thanks to james uh for being on here and talking about 2049 we uh we know you love the movie and uh you brought a lot of a lot of interesting points, a lot of things that uh, hadn't come up in my own research or analysis. It was a pleasure. Let's uh, let's do Blade Runner 2049 round two in a couple hundred episodes or something when, yeah. when you guys are ready. Uh, sure. We didn't get yeah. to half of what was written in the notes, so yeah, there's, yeah. Uh, there's a bunch more there. Great, great film, and it was a, a treat have, uh, being able to come on. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, thanks again. Of course. And uh, as always, uh, you know, if you if you like what you hear, please give us a review on iTunes. We'd appreciate it. And uh, if you have any comments, if you have thoughts on a scene we talked about or you have a different scene that you would have uh, brought up in a discussion and you have a one or two sentence take on it, please email us at singleservingcinema at gmail.com or hit us up in the DMs on Instagram at sscpod. Uh, But that's it for us this week. Bye, everyone.